Well, this morning I'm going to talk with you about something that's, uh, I think, very important. It's a very momentous occasion. Since the beginning of January, we have been going through the Bible, um, reading at home through the Bible, and um, preaching on Sunday and studying on Wednesday night the Bible of the book that we're studying for that week. And this week it happens to be the book of Acts. But as I began to look at the book of Acts and also look at the calendar, I realized there was a, a connection there that I felt like I wanted to capitalize on. Most of you know that um, Tuesday is a very important day. And I'm not talking about Halloween either. Tuesday is the 500th anniversary of something that I want to talk with you about this morning. Many years ago, 500 years ago, there was a, a priest in the Catholic Church who became disenchanted with some of the things that were happening and the things that were being taught in certain practices, some of which we'll talk about this morning. And he made a list of, of um, grievances, I could say. It's known in history as 95 Theses. There was 95 statements that he wrote down on sheets of paper or parchment or whatever. And the, the story is, and nobody knows if this part of it is accurate exactly, but the story is that he went to the church in Wittenberg where he lived and he nailed to the door of the church this list of 95 theses or grievances that he had about what was going on with the church. Now, there's no doubt that he wrote 95 theses. That's not even debatable. That's in print and has been circulated for 500 years now. So that's, that part is not in question. The, the part that people sometimes wonder about, did he actually nail it to the church door? Well, as it turns out, the church door in those days was a whole lot like, um, I don't know if you've ever been down Hillsborough Street. Uh, near the university, North Carolina State University, and you may have noticed on telephone poles and everywhere you can put one, there's a sign or a notice of some kind, right? You can go down Franklin Street, Carolina, and you'll see the same thing. There's all kinds of notices and things that people have posted on bulletin boards and telephone poles. It's just kind of a thing that happens in those areas. Well, in those days, 500 years ago, the the front door of the church was kind of like the public bulletin board and people would go there and they would post notices. So it does make sense that the 95 theses would have been posted there. That created quite an uproar and Martin Luther was um, his design, his plan because he was a priest, he was also a professor, a scholar, very intelligent man, very diligent about things spiritual, and he had this desire to please God. And he just saw some abuses that he felt like needed to be addressed. So this list was designed to, to kind of encourage or even a challenge to debate these particular things. He wanted to stir up some conversation. Let's talk about this. This can't be right. And he made the list hoping that people would respond. 
Well, the printing press had been recently invented, and the list was not only posted on the door, but printed and distributed uh, throughout the land, and it created quite a stir. And as you can imagine, not everybody probably liked it. But that's the story that we're going to be dealing with today. Tuesday, this happened on October the 31st of the year 1517. So that means that this coming Tuesday, October the 31st, is 500 years since that happened. The fact that he nailed something on the church door is not the big issue. The big issue was what happened as a result of doing that. And that we will talk about this morning and that we know and have come to call the Reformation. The Reformation began 500 years ago this coming Tuesday. But when we go to the book of Acts, which is at least on the calendar, on our schedule, what we're dealing with this morning, I'd like for us to understand that the book of Acts is a book of history. It's the history of the early church. As a matter of fact, the history of the church begins before then. And I want to give you just some background information for a few moments. The history of Christianity actually begins with the Gospels. Amen? Because it is in the Gospels that we read about Jesus, the Savior of the world, how He came and He laid down His life for us and He was crucified on a cross and buried in a tomb and rose again on the third day. But while Jesus was here on earth, what we call his earth walk sometimes, he actually began what we today know as the church. The Bible says he, he spent the night in prayer and he called unto himself whom he desired to, that being the twelve apostles. And the Bible says, and he ordained twelve that they should be with him. And that they should have this ministry to, to, um, begin ministering in this great work that he had talked to them about. Jesus said to them one day, he said, um, I'm going to build my church, right? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So he began that process with his 12 disciples. Later he sent out 70 others also. The book of Luke tells us. And then scripture tells us that uh, on the day of Pentecost, which brings us to the book of Acts in Acts chapter 1, that there were on the day of Pentecost gathered in the upper room, there were about 120 who were gathered there. There is they gathered on the day of Pentecost and the spirit, the promise of the father came and the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, and and Peter was just, the Bible says, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he began, now remember, Peter is this guy who just a few days earlier had denied that he even knew the Lord. He denied with cursing and swearing that he even knew who Jesus was, but now he has um, he has repented, the Lord has come to him, and visited with him and talked with him. And and so here on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of the Lord comes down and they are all filled with the Spirit. And then uh, 
miracle of miracles. I mean, it seems like most unlikely one would have been Peter. You'd think he'd be sitting over there pouting, having a pity party about what had happened and how he'd let the Lord down. But being filled with the Spirit, the Bible says Peter just jumped up and started preaching. And he preaches a sermon that we read about in Acts chapter 2. And the Bible says that after he preached that sermon, there were 3,000 who were added to the Lord that day. So we've gone from 12 plus 70 to 120 to 3,000 more. And it's just a couple chapters later in the Bible where there was another sermon preached. And this time 5,000 were added. And the church, it seems to me, is growing pretty well, isn't it? It's amazing what can happen when the Spirit of the Lord begins to move and things begin to happen. People will respond to the gospel. And so what we see is the church is growing. Well, the church is growing. We read about that in the book of Acts and things are going well. But then we're going to also acknowledge in the book of Acts that we began to see persecution coming to the church. There was persecution, the Bible tells us, and this is a passage I think that I definitely want to read. So if you have your Bibles open to Acts, turn with me to Acts chapter 8, please. Uh, Saul was not even yet an apostle. He was, to be honest with you, he was a hater of Jesus at this point. Chapter 8 verse 1 says, now Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. Yeah, kill him, stone him. The Bible says, at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except who? The apostles. Uh, you've heard me, some of you say harp. You've heard me harp on this before. This is important. We've got to understand this. A great persecution came upon the church, which was at Jerusalem. The Bible says they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Everyone fled except who? The apostles. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Everybody else fled. And so the Bible says, therefore, in verse 4, Therefore, those who were scattered, was it the apostles who were scattered or the church who was scattered? The church. Verse 4 says, therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So what we see there is there is a church engaged. There is a church involved. There is a church plugged in. There is a church reaching out. There's a church testifying. There's a church witnessing. There's a church that is telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? No doubt about it, the way it's described for us there. And then... This time of persecution continues. It even happens so that um, years later, the emperors, some of them get involved. It's kind of like today, really. Isn't it true now that, that a lot of times when you look at Hollywood and some of the other prominent individuals who get TV and radio time, is it not true that a lot of times they're blaming Christians for what's wrong with this world today? Absolutely. That's, that's the, that's the popular thing to do. Blame Christians now for what's going on. Well, that was happening here. The emperor came into power and they began sometimes to blame Christians. Rome burned while Nero played his fiddle, they says, but he blamed the Christians for it burning. 
And as it happens, he wasn't the only one. There were, there were several emperors, Roman emperors, who in succession would inflict great persecution and, and pain upon the church. You've heard about this. There were times when they were, Christians were, um, torn apart limb from limb, having an animal tied to their arms and legs and pull them apart limb from limb. They had their eyes gouged out and their tongues cut out at times. Some of them were crucified. Some of them were burned at the stake. Very notable historic figures in the church. Some of them were burned at the stake. It was a commonplace thing to do. There were literally hundreds of thousands of Christians who were persecuted and murdered. It was popular because you had these egotistical, pompous, arrogant um, emperors who many of them claimed that them, they, they themselves were gods. They placed altars in the public squares in, in the Roman uh, kingdom, Roman empire. And as you went into a public place to do business, that altar was there and you were expected, whoever you were, you were expected to go by and take a pinch of incense and place it in the fire and say, Lord Caesar. It's kind of like a pledge of allegiance. That's the way they were doing it. And if you don't do that, if you don't say Lord Caesar, then you're in trouble with the emperor and with the armies who are supporting his wishes. There were many Christians who refused to call anybody Lord but who? Jesus. They said, Jesus is Lord. I will not call Caesar Lord. And as a result, they lost their lives and died. Terrible thing. Not all the emperors were that way. There were some emperors that persecuted the church and then there'd be a, a rest or a respite from that. And then the next emperor may do the same thing and return to persecutions. But over a period of about 250 years, there were terrible persecutions inflicted against the church. But then there became a time where there was acceptance of the church. Now, some of you, because we're human, I, I would suppose some of you or some of us are probably just going to kind of get bored today. But I really feel that we need to understand what has happened with the history of the church and where we are and what we're celebrating this coming Tuesday, just to be aware of what Reformation means. There was a time when uh, an emperor, the first of those, I think, was Constantine, which you could logically assume, and he even claimed to be a Christian. In some ways, you would think that helps, wouldn't you? When the emperor is a Christian, then probably the persecution's going to cease. But you know, sometimes a lot of trouble can come to the church. It won't be persecution, but it can be other things that can be even more damaging than persecution. In fact, over the years, persecution of the church has generally caused the church to thrive. It has caused the church to grow. When persecution comes, people, it's more than lip service. You either got to make up your mind you're going to get in or you're going to get out. It's like the person who puts the pinch of incense. There were some Christians that did that. There were some believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that put, took a pinch of incense and put it on the fire and said, Lord Caesar. And they did that to save their neck, to save their own lives. Well, when Constantine became emperor, 
he, um, it, it became, Christianity became accepted. Who was going to persecute the Christians if the emperor was a Christian? Later, there was another emperor who basically proclaimed the Roman Empire as Christian. In other words, we're all Christians now. We're a Christian nation. We're a Christian empire now. Now, you know how that works. That doesn't work, does it? Because becoming a Christian is an individual decision that a person makes. Am I right? You can't become a Christian because I declare you to be a Christian. You become a Christian because you repent of your sins, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then serve him to the best of your ability and knowledge and all the grace that God will give you. It's a very serious thing to be a Christian. But when everyone was was proclaimed, we are a Christian nation, there was no more persecution. But, but boy, could things go downhill very quickly. The Catholic Church... The, it's, the word Catholic means universal. The church in general, the Catholic church, the universal church flourishes in that setting numerically. I mean, let's face it, if you say, if there's, if, if there's 300 million people in the Roman Empire and you say we are a Christian empire, that, that's a big group. Everybody's assumed to be Christian, but it doesn't work that way. There's a caution there. I think all of us need to understand numbers do not necessarily mean biblical orthodoxy. Large numbers do not mean faithfulness. Large numbers do not mean they're Christians. It just means large numbers. And that's what happened in ancient Rome. We're a Christian nation, the emperor would say, but that doesn't mean that those 300 million names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life at all, does it? No. And so certain trends, T-R-E-N-D-S, certain trends began to develop. Now a trend, according to Webster's, is a general direction in which something is developing or changing. A general direction in which something is developing or changing, and things are always developing or changing, generally. So I'm going to share with you some trends of that period, going all the way back to the three, four, five, and six hundreds in that range. It's what we're talking about today: trends in the universal church, in the Catholic Church. The first, incidentally, everybody was Catholic in those days. It was the it was the church, the universal church. There were no denominations. It was the church. But trends such as unbiblical separation between the clergy and the laity. In other words, to elevate the priest, to elevate the preacher, to elevate the pastor, to elevate anybody as to being a person who is he himself only qualified To read and interpret the Bible is a dangerous thing. Amen? And then, by extension, to begin to think and understand that only the priest is qualified 
to do ministry. Because after all, the priest is a professional. The priest is trained. The priest is capable. But the unprofessional, untrained, incapable laity, well, they just need to keep their mouth shut and sit and listen. You you see what I'm saying? And when you begin to develop that mentality, then you've got the priest who alone can minister and nobody else can. And you've got the people. First of all, they didn't have Bibles. The Bibles were in Latin. Guess what? Only the priests were educated and could read Latin. So they read the Bible, kept it to themselves, did not want it translated in any other languages. So the priest had the word of God, the people did not. By that way, you can keep people kind of, keep them under wrap. You can tell them what you want them to know. You can tell them what they're supposed to think and what they're supposed to believe with no way to check on it, no way to, 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 to make sure it's correct. So that's what was happening. There was an unbiblical separation between the clergy and the laity. The reason I read Acts chapter 8 a few moments ago was to let you know that in the early church, there was not this artificial distinction between the clergy and the laity, between the apostles and the people. In fact, when the persecution came, they had to flee. The people went and did ministry wherever they went, preached the word wherever they went. And you know what the apostles did? They kept preaching the word wherever they went to. But everybody was involved. Everybody was ministering. Everybody was engaged. But there came a time when in the church that was not permitted. It wasn't desired. It wasn't wanted. And it wasn't allowed. You had to be the priest if you had anything to say or do in the church service. Restricted access to God's word, which I've already just touched upon. It was in Latin. Nobody else could read it. Priests took upon themselves the power to forgive sin and to impose penance. The confession. Go to a man and confess your sins. The Bible doesn't teach that. No man can forgive my sin. I have to go to Jesus for forgiveness of sin. Amen? As a matter of fact, I don't need to confess to men. I need to confess to the Lord and he can save. So priests took upon themselves the power to forgive sin and to impose penance. That is to tell you what you need to do in order to be forgiven. I want you to, the priest might say, I want you to pray 500 prayers of this particular prayer. I want you to do this a particular number of times. Penance. I remember when I was a little boy going to elementary school, I think even in high school, I believe. Whenever we went to lunch on Fridays, what was always served at school on Fridays for lunch? (laughs) Everybody knew. Why? It's because, it's because the Catholics were told you don't eat meat on Friday. As a penance, it's kind of a fast to honor the Lord and, and, and repent of your sins. You refrain from meat on Friday, so they served fish instead. And we all grew up that way, didn't we? Until about 1960s, the Catholic Church in the United States 
decided to make an exception for that and kind of lay that aside. And now you can probably get anything you want to on Fridays at the school. Well, not anything you want to, but other choices. <laughs> well, priests took upon themselves the power to forgive sin and impose penance. And then there's a place called purgatory. How many has ever heard of purgatory? Purgatory in, in um, Catholic dogma is this place that if you have uh, venial sins, if you have sins that aren't worthy of of um, sending you to hell for eternity, but you're not quite ready for heaven because of the sin in your life, then you go to this place called purgatory. And there you stay for, who knows? Depends on how bad a boy you've been or how bad a girl you've been. You stay there until you have paid the penalty for your sins. And then this little thing was invented called indulgences. Where that if you had a loved one that you believed was in purgatory, then you had the ability to take in a certain amount of money and give it to the priest and they'd give you an indulgence and it would help buy their way out of purgatory sooner. Um, incidentally... None of that can be found in Scripture. Prayers. Now, if you think I'm being hard on the Catholics, don't don't jump the gun. It's Martin Luther. He's the one who brought all this to light. Prayers to Mary. Uh, when I pray, I'm praying to God, the Lord Jesus Christ, or the Holy Spirit. Amen? Yes. We pray to God. But prayers to Mary were and are quite common. And then also I've listed there the sale of indulgences. The sale of indulgences became quite a, um, quite a problem. And to verify to you that this was actually happening, and Pastor Ron's just not making this stuff up, I'm going to read to you uh, and it'll, it'll be on the screen. This is from the Catholic Encyclopedia. The Council of Trent instituted severe reforms in the practice of granting indulgences and because of prior abuses in 1567, Pope Pius V canceled all grants of indulgences involving any fees or other financial transactions. If that was done in 1567, Martin Luther wrote his 95 theses in 1517. How many years have passed? It was addressed as a result of what Martin Luther had done, admitted to abuses. We've got to change the way this is done, but now we're going back in our minds to 1511 in the time of Martin Luther. And what we're going to be sharing with you is fact. This is just for your information. We'll now see a picture of St. Peter's Basilica. Isn't that beautiful? It's a gorgeous, a gorgeous place. 
Um, it is said to be the largest, the second largest church in the world. It is an awesome place. St. Peter's Basilica. The next slide is a, pist- uh, a picture of the Sistine Chapel inside. Absolutely gorgeous. The next slide shows a picture of the dome in Sistine Chapel. Now let me share this with you. If it was built today, it is estimated that the cost of the Sistine Chapel would be over $7 billion. That's with a B. It took 120 years to build. And there's the dates. If you'll notice, 1506 was when it began. And 1511, does that ring a bell? Five years later was when this was addressed publicly by Martin Luther. Artists such as Michelangelo. Michelangelo spent four years laying on his back on scaffolding, painting the ceiling. In the Sistine Chapel. Another artist that's very well known. Raphael. Their paintings and work was used to beautify the structure. No telling what that would have cost. 120 years to build. 7 billion dollars. You've seen pictures of it. 11 years into that massive project. Martin Luther showed up at the church door in Wittenberg and nailed his 95 theses to the door. Most of them, or many of those 95 theses, had to do with the sale of indulgences. The next slide shows a picture of uh, Martin Luther as if he's nailing to the door These 95 theses. Number 27 of that 95, and this is word for word in English. They preach only human doctrines. Who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. Now you see now I've taken the time to give you context. Talked about purgatory. We've talked about the sale of indulgences. Let me ask you this before we read that again. Should we be more concerned with human doctrines or godly doctrines? Verse 27, his complaint was, now you got to remember Martin Luther was a priest. He was a Catholic. He was part of the church. But he was burdened. He was bothered. He, he just... He never really felt like he measured up good enough to make it to heaven. And in his search for peace in his heart, and to figure out what it was in his life he was doing wrong, he he began to search the scriptures until he came across this scripture um, that says, The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith? And that a light went on in his heart and in his mind. 
And thus began this whole process of him speaking up and saying things like, priests cannot forgive sin. The Pope cannot forgive sin. Only Jesus can do that. We're not saved by penance and we're not saved by doing these things we do. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ and faith alone. The grace of God accomplishes that for us. So he began to understand that. He posted those 95 theses in 1517. But for the rest of his life, He was persecuted. He was excommunicated in 1521. Kicked out of the church. You're no longer welcome here. Sometimes in hiding for his own safety. And during one of those periods when he was being harbored in a palace in hiding, he translated the New Testament into German from Latin, which was a really big deal. Because he was a German and there were printing presses now and that started the process and opened the door for people to be able to read the word of God for themselves. Sometimes we take for granted the fact that we have Bibles. My goodness, I couldn't even tell you how many Bibles I have. I don't have a clue how many Bibles I have. There's a bunch of them and some folks don't have one. We saw in the video today the little boy, Samaritan's Purse, that prayed that God would send him a Bible. There are people who just want a Bible. It's important that we have that, that we can read for ourselves and see what God's Word says. That wasn't available then. Nobody had a Bible but a priest, a scholar. Martin Luther was a hymn writer as well. He wrote many hymns. Um, There was no hymn singing in the church during those days. If there was, it had to be done by the priest. Because remember, they're the professionals. They're the priest. The laity just go and listen. They don't sing. They don't preach. They're just there. We're going to sing, at least I hope you can sing with me, one of these hymns today. Right where you're seated. The music's going to be on the, on the um, recorded. And so, um, it's a wonderful hymn written by Martin Luther. If you can see the words from where you are, I'd like for you to sing this with me. Maybe if we could dim all the lights, please, and it might help us a little bit better to see those words.
good stuff from somebody 500 years ago. Amen. Great song there. Great lyrics. Great understanding of the word. And today, because of this stand that Martin Luther took, that he refused to to um, abide by things that he saw as being unbiblical or extra biblical, and he wanted to do things in a way that was consistent with and honored God and his word, he took a stand that cost him much. And as a result of that, he did not stand alone, did he? He had many, many, many thousands of people who stood with him then and have stood with him ever since. As Martin Luther protested some of the things that were happening in the church, many others protested with him, and that's why today we are called Protestants, those who joined with him in that protest. Now, for those who are students of history and who know the story well, for your benefit, I'm going to continue in a different vein for just a moment. And that is to say that Martin Luther was not perfect. 
Martin Luther, in his uh, later days, wrote some writings that a lot of people have criticized. And it was obvious that he had some um, anti-Semitic leanings. He spoke very... Um, well, he disliked the Jews. Let's just leave it at that. And he wrote about that and spoke about that. As I, as I wondered about what he had done so far, and then to have this added to his resume, if you will, I have to pause and acknowledge Martin Luther wasn't a perfect man, but God used him. But I could say the same thing about every other person on the face of the earth that God has ever used. They were not perfect people, but God used them. I want you to get that today. You don't have to be perfect for God to use you. Amen? So sometimes God uses imperfect people like me and you to share his word. And to carry the gospel and to be salt and light in our world. He uses imperfect people. You don't have to be perfect to be used by him. And our job today as Christians is to win the lost at any cost and to live daily for him. To love the Lord with all our hearts, all of our soul and mind and strength. As we get ready to sing this last song before we pray together. I would like to share with you when we turn to the book of Acts we're reading church history the time frame for the book of Acts was about 30 years maybe a little more 30 plus years for the book of Acts but then we have lots of other church history we have almost 2,000 years now of church history to look back on As a matter of fact, church history is still being written today. In the record book in heaven, you know the Bible says a lot about the Lord keeping the books. Scripture in the Psalms that talks about He puts my tears in a bottle. Now I know that's poetic. But there's not a tear that falls that he's not aware of. There's not a thing that we do that he doesn't know. So with that in mind, as he, because he's God, he records, he understands all that we do. And church history is still being written by us. A hundred years from now, what we're doing today would be history. It won't take a hundred years either, will it? What we do is important. How we live is important. So therefore we don't, as Jesus said, you don't take your light and hide it under a basket, a bushel. Neither do you hide it under the bed. But a light is made to shine. So as Christians today, we we get into the Word of God and we study what it says. And we live our lives in a way that's obedient. We do all the things the Bible talks about. We love people. We forgive people. We reach people. 
we just try to do things because you know what we we have in God's word an example of how we're supposed to live right but we have in the person of Jesus an example to look at how he lived and us live the same way bracelets we used to see in people's hands that said WWJD what what would Jesus do we want to live like Jesus would live and do what Jesus would do and we know for a fact that some of the last words that Jesus left to us had to do with winning the lost go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature And based on what's already been said, I'm going to submit to you, that doesn't mean that that's the preacher's job. That's all of our jobs. Amen? All of us have a responsibility to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ and share the gospel. Hurting people all around us, sometimes with no hope. And we've got a message of hope and love and life to share with them if we just open our mouths and tell them. You can do it. You say, I'm not trained. That doesn't matter. I'm not a professional. That doesn't matter. We believe that God will use anybody who's willing to be used. Surrender to Him. Sing with me this song. Would you stand? Yeah.
we want to thank you for your word and for the direction, the instruction that you give us. What we're singing about this morning, to put that in the forefront of our minds. To share the love of Jesus with those who don't know. Lord, to be able to let them know there is a God who loves them, a Savior who died for them. If they'll just confess their sin and believe in your name, repent. Lord, you will save them and grant them eternal life. It doesn't matter who they are, how young, how old, how long they've been in sin. Your grace is sufficient. So help us to share that with others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. On Tuesday, when some people are thinking about trick-or-treat and Halloween, I think I'm going to be thinking about Martin Luther and the Reformation. Hey, folks, listen. Something as important as that, and Tuesday being the five-year anniversary of that, I couldn't neglect that this morning. We had to talk about that and acknowledge what has happened in church history. Well, this coming week we have some who are going to be having surgeries and need prayer. And uh, Robbie, would you like for us to pray for you today? If you would, step up here if you would. We're going to pray for Robbie. She's going to be having surgery on Wednesday, uh, neck and back. And she's had lots of trouble over the years with that. And we're just going to ask the Lord to minister to her. I have a prayer request here. Janie Lassiter, let's remember that particular request. Um, anyone else who would like to be prayed for today, you're welcome to come. The Bible tells us in James chapter 5 that it says, Is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. And it talks about how we should anoint them with oil, lay hands on them, and pray the prayer of faith. And the Bible says when we do that, there will be good results. So we're going to do that today. I'm going to ask some of some of our elders, some of our brothers, and if you just believe in prayer and you're willing to come, come right on. And we're going to anoint uh, Robbie with oil, and we're going to pray that the Lord will minister to her and meet this need on this coming Wednesday. Thank the Lord. In obedience to the Lord, we do this today following the example of Scripture.
This past week, um, my sister-in-law, Joy's brother's wife, had surgery on Friday. We announced this earlier at the church and asked for prayer, especially on Wednesday night. And she has been, uh, she has just been homebound. She's just a young woman in her 40s. And she has been, been, couldn't get out of the house, couldn't hardly go anywhere. Her her back was in such bad shape, pain. It's been a couple years. It's just been, it's been pitiful. And they, after seeing every doctor they knew to see and everything they could do here, uh, somehow they heard about a doctor in Dallas, Texas. So last Monday they flew out to Dallas to stay there to prepare for the whatever the doctor needed to do and she had surgery on Friday and we ask you to pray and I noticed after the surgery that uh, Joy's brother Barry posted on Facebook that she was in the room and she was resting well she has some soreness of course from having surgery but she said that the pain that she had to have the surgery and the numbness that she had experienced she said that seemed to be all gone So, that lets us know that the Lord is answering prayer. Um, We know if you have surgery and and they do a little cutting, there's going to be some soreness there, right? But boy, when the rest of it feels all right now, uh, that that lets us know God is at work. And I want to thank you for your prayers as they do. He's a prayer answering God. Would you, before you leave, just shake hands? Listen, first of all, don't forget to touch base with Mary Beth in the lobby. And let her know you'll help us sometime Friday or Saturday. Work that out with her. And also Sherry for Samaritan's Purse. God bless you and thank you for being here today.